Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, Sarah Catherine Billups and Katie Tabordo talk to Princeton professor Dalton Conley, author of Being Black, Living in the Red, and popular sociology textbook, You May Ask Yourself. This conversation focuses on how to involve sociological inquiry in the world of biological sciences, particularly genomic biology, and the questions that arise from doing so. Welcome to Office Hours. Katie and I are here with Dalton Conley today, um, distinguished professor in sociology and also has recently earned a second PhD in genomic biology. Can you tell us why did you take on a second PhD in genomic biology? Uh, that's a that's a tough question. I would say midlife crisis probably <laughs> um, that uh, you know I'm always well I've always advocated uh lifelong learning that you have to keep your mind fresh and ideas fresh by constantly taking new classes. And I tried to do that. Um, and, uh, I went, got a little carried away in this case, uh, because I was very excited about what I was learning and, and locked myself into a structure, uh, actual degree program so that I wouldn't quit when the, you know, if I was just auditing, I always quit like two thirds of the way through the course because, other things took over my life, but this way I was taking quizzes and exams and um, potentially embarrassing myself in front of much younger students. So I definitely took it much more seriously. But uh, it came out of my interest in uh, social inequality and social environment and health and trying to understand what was going on in that relationship. But then I kind of, you know, of course, it took a life of its own and I ended up asking a lot of questions that were unrelated to that. And so what can sociologists contribute to interdisciplinary areas? This, I don't know about interdisciplinary areas in general, but in this particular area, I think that uh, geneticists uh, basically don't have much of a sense of representativeness, of um, the idea of, uh, of, of sampling from a universe. I mean, a lot, a lot of basic research design questions, they, they also don't think about um, causal endogeneity as much as sociologists are starting to. I mean, sociologists um, uh, are a little bit behind economists on that front, but that's changing pretty rapidly as well. So I think in terms of, um, you know, inference from observe data where you don't really uh, can't really conduct experiments like psychologists can, for example, or wet lab biologists can. I think social scientists in general and sociologists in particular have a lot of uh, insight and experience to offer. Great. Can you say a little bit about why the combination of sociology and biology is considered controversial? I I think that the... uh, I think how you combine biological information and and information about the social environment uh, it, it makes it more or less controversial. So uh, I think there's a long tradition of biomarkers research where the bio uh, measure is the dependent variable. So 
there's, for example, using cortisol to measure stress. Uh, and there's some really interesting research um, uh, by Kate Taylor at Indiana University that shows that even when people self-report, oh, I wasn't stressed, you can see from their heart rate, from their cortisol levels and their saliva uh, um, that actually uh, they were stressed. And so, for example, when she puts men in a gender minority situation in a task and there's Confederates and it's meant to be a stressful situation, but they're a gender minority in the situation. Men do not report or admit feeling stressed, but she can see that in the biomarkers. Uh, women have much more of a correspondence, if I remember the study correctly, between what their self-report in terms of their how stressed they were and what the biological measures are showing them. Another example is uh, um, exhaled carbon monoxide uh, is a better predictor of mortality than self-reported cigarette consumption in terms of our lung cancer predictor. So a lot of times you can use biomarkers to get additional information that you're not getting from traditional survey reports, for example, especially for things that have some social desirability bias. I don't think that's that controversial. I think that sociologists welcome when um, biology is the dependent variable. Health, mortality, I mean, all of demography mm -hmm. is studying biology as a dependent variable. Uh, but when you do something like uh, myself and other colleagues are trying to do, where you put something that's basically fixed to conception um, uh, meaning your your genotype, and you put that on the right-hand side, you make that the independent variable, and you're trying to explain some aspects of social life with that, um, or even make that as a moderating variable, then sociologists tend to get very uncomfortable because um, we were born uh, as a reaction to a more you know biological explanation of human society and of human behavior. I mean, we're, we were very clearly um, part of the nurture and of the nature and nurture, you know, divide and as the pendulum has swung back and forth over the last 100 to 150 years. So it's something that's not in our comfort zone. But I think that with the um, onslaught of genetic information, thanks to cheap genotyping chips that are that are pervading society now, so many studies, medical studies, but also social scientific studies, plus commercial sites like 23andMe. 23andMe is now the largest and most unrepresentative um, human database in the world. I mean, with genetics. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess the census is the most, the biggest, or the Chinese census is the biggest. Um, but um, but this genotype information is going to be an increasing part of our daily lives and if social scientists aren't involved in showing how to properly model it and what kind of inferences you can and cannot draw then i think um the general public uh, knowledge and, and understanding of that kind of and, and what we'll what we'll know about human behavior will be impoverished if we just sit it out i, I mean at this point i think there's a cons there's you know it's not nature versus nurture i think i think that that debate is so 20th century and today we all you know some or we all many of us think that it's nature via nurture um and vice versa um and that you really have to have a kind of reconciliation between uh, between the two sides and not even think of them as two sides we select into our environments based on our biological proclivities how our environment affects us 
depends on our biological proclivities. Um, <clears throat> and the um, social environment, in fact, affects our biology. So it's all one big Gordian knot. And, um, and if you really want to do a better job explaining um, society and human behavior, I think you can't ignore one half of it. So some of your recent work deals with intersections of biology and sociology, such as using molecular data to test some controversial hypotheses like the bell curve. Can you give our over give our listeners just kind of an overview of what you're doing with that and then talk about the contributions that work can make for either academia or for policy? Uh, well, let me start with the policy question. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, it's the intuition of some of us that um, when we observe that, you know, childhood poverty really devastates some children, uh, but some kids seem pretty resilient to it. Um, or when, you know, you raise tobacco taxes and some people quit smoking immediately, but others just pay through the nose for, for their vice, um, that probably what's going on is a gene-environment interaction and that some people have genotypes where, you know, they're very sensitive to the economic circumstances of their family and community and other kids are kind of like these keep on trucking kids that just w aren't as elastic or responsive to their economic uh circumstances or environment or uh, or family disruption or what whatever the thing we're measuring is and uh many of us think that sort of genotype your sort of underlying temperament your um so your cognitive frame all sorts of aspects that are hardwired into you are probably the lens that makes sense of why some kids uh I'm picking on kids, but it could be also any age, um, uh, are, have different responses to the same social stimuli. And um, that. And if policymakers knew that, and I'm not advocating that the whole, you know, all of society, uh, all of society's members be genotyped and that's stored in some central government database, but, I'm, but, it, but to the extent that we know uh, and are able to measure that kind of, innate sensitivity to certain contexts or to certain uh, ways of learning or to certain health shocks or whatever, uh, I think that policymakers could theoretically, at least, and I'm not advocating this, design tailored policies in the same way that doctors talk about the frontier of personalized medicine. So that's, the <clears throat> that's what I think the long-term promise for policymakers may be, but I'm, but that's would be we're way far away from that right now and also i'm not sure how i feel about that or how society feels about that even if it's more cost effective to target certain you know reading interventions or tu tu tutorial strategies to certain kids based on their genotype um, I, I think that makes a lot of us uncomfortable and um but from just from a social scientific perspective, I think is really important to know how genes and environment uh, interact and how um, uh, also we've learned so much uh, about human history looking backwards, not forwards, through the genome. We know that uh, many Europeans and Asians have 
ancestry from Neanderthals, for example, or Denovians, which are different kind of sibling species of ours. We, we can trace exactly how and when different groups of people uh, migrated across the earth, and we can see the, the traces of colonialism and, and rape and pillaging through the um, mixture of genomes that are um, disproportionately the Y chromosome versus the X chromosome. I mean, there's so much human history you can read um, in social history you can read through the lens of the genome uh, that I think is interesting that that is just starting to happen a lot now. And then, of course, there's um, the notion that um, uh, we're going to just basically have better predictive power of, of human behavior whether that's health-related behaviors, um, learning styles, or what have you, from from genetic information. But again, we're really in the infancy of that. And uh, I personally am interested in how social sorting and social segregation and stratification and so forth does or does not have an analog at the genomic level, whether or not because, let's say, we are more assertively mating today on education levels than we were 50 years ago. Does that mean we're also stratifying by the uh, underlying genetic uh, factors that predict education? And so far, at least, we find that we're not, actually, that the genetic trends are going in the opposite direction as the overall trends of an educational assortative mating. So those are interesting questions to me. Uh, they might be very esoteric and only interested interesting to you know, a dozen scholars in the world. Uh, I don't know, but that's not, you know, that's not my problem as long as I, um, uh, I'm interested and it keeps me going and, and I'm careful about the research design. I think this is a fascinating area. So you've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm interested in learning a little bit more about the direction of the field, uh, particularly sociologists who are interested in understanding medicine, health, science, technology. So um, what can the, what can genetics offer to people who are, um, well, I think that uh, I, I would say that there is what I've already talked about, which is the gene environment interaction. And if you have um, a, you know, a smoking cessation pl um, intervention or you have a, um, a dieting um, a plan where you're going to set people up into networks to try to lose weight together or um, uh, anything with health or or educational related any any intervention you, you will understand why you better understand why some people are responsive and get benefits from that and some people don't based on their genotype but I also think that even if you don't care at all about genotype um, for outcomes where we know there's a, a large kind of innate genetic effect. So take uh, body mass index or um, take cardiovascular disease or take um, other risks, um, health risks. Uh, just controlling for the genetic effects that we know are significant will make your, even if you don't care at all about genetic effects, it'll make your the estimation of the parameters for the environmental variables you do care about, whether that's education or um, neighborhood poverty or whatever it is, uh, will make it more precise because you're getting rid of a lot of noise in the data by controlling for people's 
genetic uh, propensities towards whatever behavior you're talking about, but also probably make them less biased. These people who um, smoke, let's say, um, probably have genetic propensities for risk taking in general. And so if you control that out, then you can more directly or more accurately know what the effect of the smoking per se is, as just an example that I'm making up on the spot. But that's the idea that like there's a lot of behaviors are related to each other, the dependent variable and the independent variable, um, through some third underlying factor that could be the genetics of of patience, of you know, being able to wait for gratification. Or it could be the genetics of grit, or it could be the genetics of cognitive um, math ability, or something like that. And um, not controlling for that will cause a spurious association or part of an association between two variables you do care about to be spurious. And um, getting rid of that component gives us more handle on what we really do care about. Great. So... I'm sure you've heard that the writers of the MCAT have recently changed the exam to include sociology questions, and a lot of medical schools now require um, applicants to have taken at least a sociology mm -hmm. course. Boom as, for our enrollments. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a result, we've seen an increasing number of pre-health and pre-med students in our courses. Um, that's definitely true here at Minnesota. I have a class full of them right now. What do you think? Why do you think that sociology is important to the pre-health and pre-med students? I think, I mean, I can't speak for why. I don't even know who runs the MCAT as the college board, but whoever, you know, medical school association uh, changed the curriculum, I think they should be applauded for that. I think that their motive comes out of a recognition that uh, of two factors. One, uh, growing number of actual medical practitioners, not to mention researchers, recognize the importance of social environment on health. Um, uh, you know, we're, we've, some people say we've gone through the second epidemiological transition, the first being sort of the decline of uh, death from infectious diseases, uh, thanks to public health, like clean water, and th through treatment like vaccines and antibiotics. And now we're in an era of um, chronic disease where um, diabetes, met other metabolic syndrome diseases, um, overweight status, uh, asthma, arthritis, um, Alzheimer's, uh, a whole set of new diseases that are um, the major killers. There's some of the old ones are still around, but um, uh, are social in in their roots they're social they have there's some in some cases like alzheimer's they literally have social outcomes like their behavioral outcomes like can you function in society if you have alzheimer's um, or in other cases there's social antecedents or there's so there's big social causes that are being recognized by the medical community like um metabolic syndrome and you know high blood pressure and diabetes and that it comes from our habits in in late capitalist society um second i think that in a more narrow sense the medical profession is realizing that just having you know kids take a year of physics a year of general chem orgo 
I, I was pre-med, so I remember all this very well, unfortunately. Um, uh, calculus and um, biology um, and maybe a few electives in the sciences it is probably not getting us the kind of doctors that they want. Um, they want them, them to have a more, um, if not humanistic, but at least a broader social view of the world and that the theories that will make them better physicians. I'm not sure that any of this has been tested in, you know, randomized trials, but, um, but at, at least that's the theory. And uh, it's great for us to have as sociologists to have a, a role in training such an important profession as, as medical doctors. Okay. We have one last question. Uh, can you talk about how you blend two seemingly disparate fields together via your methods? I think that uh, it, really the methods aren't so different. I mean, so if you're a quantitative sociologist, you know, you know about sampling, you know about data reduction through principal components, you know about um, scale construction probably through instead of survey scales, we look at um, genetic scales, which is what a polygenic score that tries to sum across the effect of uh, all your all the variation in your alleles in your genome on a certain outcome uh, attempts to do. So uh, and then in terms of the kind of causal inference, both geneticists and social scientists are dealing with observed data. We don't we don't run experiments. Um, I mean, some of us do, um, but the vast majority of us are not doing field or lab experiments. Uh, we're basically trying to uh, infer cause and effect from data that we see as it lays in situ. So um, that's that's the same as geneticists. They're not at least population geneticists. There are geneticists that are working on model organisms, mice or fruit flies or nematodes or zebrafish in a lab and actually manipulating the genome um, uh, through various technologies. And so, you know, creating treatment and control groups in terms of the genetic makeup. But for the most part, at least population genesis and human population genesis for sure are not doing experiments. We're not inserting these genes into this population and seeing what happens. Um, so a lot of the kind of challenges of well, are you sure that's the effect? Is that it's cause and not effect? Or are you sure there's not a third variable that's confounding all of this? Uh, are really the same. So I think that's a, a, a huge, exciting aspect of it for me, that some of the challenges are the same. Uh, and in social sciences, there's been what's called been called the causal revolution over the last 30 years, where just merely observing a difference between two groups in in an independent variable that corresponds to a difference in the in those two groups on the dependent variable, to take a simple example, um, doesn't necessarily mean that A cause B or X cause Y, that there could be a confounding from a third variable, that there's reverse causation, uh, and um, there's much more sophisticated attention paid to that in statistical models, or more, more accurately, in research design. And... Um, I think that's also going back to an earlier question, something that social scientists have been thinking about a lot and can offer to the more biological scientists. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for Thanks. talking with us today, Dalton. We really enjoyed learning more about um, how genomic biology and sociology fit together and where the future is headed in research in both fields. So we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so thank much you. for having me. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Dalton Conley was produced and hosted by me, Matthew Aguilar-Champeau, as part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of health and other kinds of social science research at thesocietypages.org.